following contain situations and circumstances that are relatable to all women, but are still uncomfortable and sometimes quite awful. We don't pull any punches. Listener discretion is advised. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Turn the ship another way. Feel it in the darkness. We're sailing right into those jagged cliffs. Yeah. Some say we've always been insane. Hey, life's a foolish game. Life's a foolish game. No female relationship is immune from rivalry. That's especially true with sisters. No matter how hard we try, sometimes it's impossible to be seen as an individual, even if you're a fashionista, an influencer, and a princess. Welcome to Frenemies, a Toil and Trouble Media original. On this show, we examine notable women and the feuds that help define them. Today, a woman pulls out all the stops, only to be remembered as the little sister of one of history's most iconic women. What's worse, her sister never really cared either way. It's the story of Lee Radziwill and Jackie Kennedy Onassis. Jacqueline Bouvier was born on July 28, 1929, to New York stockbroker John Black Jack Bouvier and socialite Janet Norton Lee. Little sister Lee followed three and a half years later. From the outside, the Bouviers seemed like the perfect family. Friends of the power couple said the girls could be quite close as young children, affectionately calling each other Jacks and Peeps. Still, at other times, they behaved more like challengers, or at best, competitors. Like most siblings, the girls had somewhat opposing personalities. Jackie was serious, level-headed, and mature. Lee was outgoing and flamboyant. As a result, their insights were also very different. They could be in the same house, experience the same series of events, and come away with two very different perceptions. Jackie readily accepted responsibility and duty, while Lee was ruled by her emotions, urges she worked hard to keep in check. And when that wasn't possible, conceal or deny. Growing up Bouvier meant living in the spotlight. As members of the elite upper class, the girls were public figures before they could walk. Between the servants, media, and other people of fame and influence, they were constantly under scrutiny. Appearances were everything, every impression a personal judgment. Survival meant staying in character, always performing, always pretending to be perfect. Their mother Janet was a walking, talking product of a similar upbringing and schooled her daughters well. They were taught to make the most of their feminine advantages, be pretty, pleasant, and polite, and then marry rich, prestigious men. To that end, Janet gave the girls mixed messages and conflicting advice. She would tell them they were beautiful, but did they have to wear that? She schooled them to be kind to all people, so long as they were in the same income bracket. She told them to stick together, that they were all each other had. Then she would take Jackie off by the hand and go off, leaving Lee behind. 
Lee frequently felt forgotten, but wouldn't admit it. What part of loneliness was pretty? Then there was the body shaming. Lee said her mother endlessly accused her of being too fat, too awkward, and failing to match up to her sister. Which, if you think about it, is really pretty horrible. Being in two entirely different developmental phases, how was Lee ever expected to succeed there? Janet's insensitive comments and behavior instilled a competition between the girls that Lee and Jackie would never be able to overcome, and probably resulted in the first loss either experienced. On the other hand, the girls adored their father, an alcoholic ladies' man rumored to have resembled Clark Gable. Jack doted on his daughters and always pushed them to be the best. But as with Janet, this wasn't handed out liberally. There was only room for one child to hold that title. And while it was constantly up for grabs, it did seem the judging slanted more in Jackie's favor. As his namesake and the one who most resembled him, Jack's was often his favorite too. The affinity wasn't lost on Lee, who in later interviews reluctantly admitted as much. But in her well-rehearsed style, she excused it as being okay. But it wasn't. Not really. Lee was savvier about art and fashion, but ironically, that didn't really seem to matter. She was an average student at the posh Miss Potter's Academy, hating every minute of it, while Jackie excelled. It was as if the skies opened up and the angels sang when Jacks walked into the classroom, where the trumpets heralding Lee sounded more like migrating geese. Nor was Lee as athletic or refined. She was just as pretty and graceful. Some would say more so. But Jackie was always seen as more polished, more assured. She was also a natural equestrian, where Lee was seen as just another girl hanging out on a horse. She just couldn't catch a break. To make matters worse, Jackie didn't even act like Lee was a threat. Not when it came to their parents' affection the attention of their nannies and tutors, or among the rest of society. While Lee was consumed with jealousy, Jackie didn't think a thing about it. While this may have boggled Lee, it probably seems perfectly reasonable to any other older sister listening. Why would she be jealous? Being the first to advance, the first to achieve nearly every childhood mile marker, she and Lee were on completely different planes. Still, Lee didn't see it that way, and she sure didn't like being ignored. Their family's lives were upended when Black Jack lost his fortune in the crash of 1929. His marriage crashed soon after. For richer or poorer? Not Janet. She took the girls, then 13 and 9, and set out to find a new husband, marrying wealthy oil heir Hugh Auchincloss. Afterwards, Janet and the girls were moved to an estate in McLean, Virginia, spending their summers in the Hamptons and Newport, Rhode Island. Jackson Peaks found themselves in a family with four step-siblings, trying to maneuver their way around their new circumstance. The divorce left them feeling divided and desperately missing their father. But in a way, they understood. Remaining with Black Jack just didn't look good. But Janet bounced back just fine. Husband number two's bank account picked up where Black Jack's left off. The marriage was practically a blank check. 
Janet loved couture and spent a fortune on the girls' wardrobes. Auchincloss also paid for their tuition to private schools and studies in Europe. Still, Lee didn't care much for the change. It wasn't much fun growing up in that huge house with her dull stepfather and Janet's almost irrational social climbing. She longed to run along the beaches, through the dunes, and the miles of potato fields her father's family once owned. But she couldn't say that. Not under the prying eyes of reporters who, as the girls grew up, only continued to exaggerate the rivalry. Questions about who was the smartest or who was mommy or daddy's favorite were replaced with headlines asking who was going to marry first, who was more popular, and who was going to be in more magazines. Now those were contests Lee could win. Janet's debutante ball at the Newport Clam Bay Club in August of 1947 was a huge deal. It was her presentation into society and her debut as an eligible bachelorette. Guests were shocked when Lee stole the show by wearing a pink strapless dress studded with rhinestones. It was no mistake. No oversight or innocent act of a loving sister excited for her sibling's coming out party. She knew good and well what would happen if she showed up dressed like a pink disco ball. It was a deliberate upstage. On April 18, 1953, Lee did it again when she married publishing executive Michael Canfield, beating her older sister to the altar. Mother Janet wasn't crazy about the arrangement. She thought Lee could do better, at least better financially. I mean, publishing? Please. The couple moved into a tiny penthouse apartment in New York, but then relocated to London after Canfield was offered a better position. Lee assumed all the attention would follow her across the pond. But then Jackie begged a politician. Just two months later, Jackie announced she was engaged to America's most eligible bachelor, the soon-to-be senator from Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy. Jackie and JFK's wedding was the social event of 1953, and both Janet and Joseph Kennedy Sr. scrambled to ensure the wedding was the most grand, most talked-about event anyone had ever seen. Once again, Lee found herself in Jackie's shadow, cold and invisible. Back in London, her social life was flourishing, but her marriage was a wreck. Tired of her husband's drinking and starting to wonder if he hadn't pickled his sperm count, Lee met Polish aristocrat Stanislaw Stas Radziwill at a social event in London. The two were immediately drawn to one another. He to Lee's beauty and charm, and she to his title and ability to walk without staggering. They soon started an affair, which in society circles could be overlooked so long as they did it quietly, and it was with a member more according with her standing. Radziwill became a British citizen after the German invasion of Poland, renouncing his title as nobility in the process, but that hardly mattered. Despite the fact that he was no longer royalty, Lee took a page out of Janet's playbook and adopted the title princess the minute that her divorce was final and the couple were wed. Eventually, they had two children together. Lee held the title in admiration with white knuckles, until even this status was overshadowed in 1961 when JFK won the presidency and thrust himself and Jackie into worldwide attention. Once again, Jacks dominated, almost overnight. America jumped on its first lady like never before, and the media coverage exploded. 
Reporters scrambled to meet the appetite of a ravenous public eager for the latest news. Jackie was unprepared for the fury and a little uncomfortable. She often felt overwhelmed by her new status and new set of responsibilities. But Lee's happy to help. With her media connections and her flair for fashion, she transformed her sister from a shy, bookish young mother to one of the most sophisticated and stylish women in the world. She remained at her sister's side as her private advisor, regularly being photographed together at dinners and events of state. Surprisingly, their brief time in the White House brought the sisters together in a way they'd never known. Lee remained a regular presence during the Thousand Days of Camelot, Anytime there was some kind of an event that was crucial, Lee was usually there. Lee was also the woman behind Jackie's famous fashion choices. She advised her sister to be a little more experimental. When Jackie was advised to only wear styles from American designers, Lee helped her access Givenchy and other European fashions. When Time Magazine named Jackie the first lady of fashion after the Kennedy's 1961 Paris trip, it was Lee who had chosen the wardrobe. What did a bunch of political advisors, all white men, know about couture anyway? But in time, the novelty wore off, and again, Lee was plagued with envy and self-doubt. She tried to do her best to mask it, first from herself, then from those around her, but it didn't work. She couldn't find a way to escape her seething jealousy, not while under the same glare of the media or under the same White House roof. Nor was it any easier on the road. In 1962, when Lee accompanied Jackie on an official state visit to India and Pakistan, she sat behind her sister in quiet agony while thousands of people shouted, Long live Mrs. Kennedy! as their motorcade made its way through New Delhi. The cheers only exacerbated her frustration. Couldn't anyone see she was just as beautiful, intelligent, and successful? It was as if she were a secondary character in her own life story. The answer? Another affair. Grading up had always worked for their mother, and it was still one area Jackie could never compete. Lee's next paramour was just around the corner, another presidential follower by the name of Aristotle Onassis. In August of 1963, Lee and the Greek business tycoon attended the opening of the Athens Hilton. In spite of the individual invitations, Onassis's involvement with the featured opera diva and the very public ring still sported on the princess's left hand, their joint appearance at the event exploded with gossip. Others on the guest list knew what was going on. Lee's husband was indifferent to the infidelity, and Onassis was looking for a sympathetic connection to the White House. John and his brother, Robert Kennedy, couldn't stand the shifty Greek who had been sued by the U.S. government in 1955 for removing a fleet of ships he had bought and promised to keep in the country. Robert regarded her relationship with him as a betrayal of the whole family. Whatever the true motivation for the lovers may have been is left to speculation, but what was clear is that Lee held very strong feelings for Onassis and maybe hoped for a future with him. That summer, JFK was scheduled to go on a state visit to Great Britain, Ireland, Italy, and Germany. Seven months pregnant, Jackie opted not to go. She'd already suffered one miscarriage and didn't want to risk another. So Lee was invited to go in her place. For the Kennedy boys, this was a win-win. John didn't have to worry about the joys of toting around a pregnant woman on a road trip. Robert could put some distance between his slutty sister-in-law and her Greek bohunk. 
Seeing an opportunity to enjoy the spotlight solo, Lee happily went along and kept John company as he conducted meetings, endless press conferences, and made his famous Ich bin ein Berliner speech in Berlin. Photos of Lee in Berlin depict her glowing in her role as first sister. And she may have been glowing for another reason. Author Gore Vidal, Jackie's close friend, said Lee's first husband told him while they were away in Europe that Lee slept with JFK. Quoting his sources saying, there were times when I think perhaps Lee went too far, like going to bed with Jack in the room next to mine in the south of France and then boasting about it. But that was just hearsay. Only two people really know the truth and neither one of them had reason to comment. And nonetheless, it didn't have any immediately devastating effects. After the tour was over, she returned to Greece where she resumed her relationship with the shipping tycoon. In late August of 1963, Jackie gave birth to a son, Patrick. The newborn survived only 39 hours. When she learned the news, Lee flew to Boston to attend her nephew's funeral and comfort her grieving sister. Jackie was devastated and couldn't fathom returning to Washington so soon after the loss of her child. Her grief was overwhelming. The flashbulbs of the cameras and constant attention of the media, too much to bear. Concerned for her sister, Lee urged Onassis to invite her to vacation with them aboard his yacht. Despite Kennedy family objections, Jackie took them up on it and spent four weeks with the couple before returning to Washington, D.C. in much better spirits, as was Onassis. Biographers assert that when he welcomed the First Lady aboard, it was love at first sight. And when it was time to depart, he presented each sister with a gift. To Jackie, he gave a magnificent diamond necklace. To Lee, a little dinky bracelet. Lee was crushed. It was pathetic. Not even a thing six-year-old Caroline would wear. Once again, Lee had been compared to her sister and lost. Once again, she was in second place. The dream of Camelot was abruptly ended in November 1963 with the assassination of JFK. In an instant, all eyes turned on his widow for direction and reassurance. At 34 years old, how is she supposed to do that? Struggling with her own grief, confusion, and concern for her children, it was all she could do to breathe. Again, Lee rushed to Washington to be with her sister. Together, Jackie was able to refocus and regroup. As she put herself together for the sake of the nation, the public intensified its feelings for her, enshrining her like never before. Jackie was now the most beloved person in America, the figure everyone could identify with. Lee tried to push her feelings of rivalry aside and may have briefly succeeded. After the funeral, she reportedly left a note on her sister's pillow that read, Good night, my darling Jacks, the bravest and noblest of all. L but it wouldn't last. Not when Onassis came along and stayed at the White House during the visit. Awkward. Lee remained with Jackie until she and the children moved out of the White House in December and moved to Georgetown. She invited them to join her on a family trip to Florida as well. While Jackie still dealt with her grief and shock, Lee would sit quietly with her, supporting her. Biographers describe Jackie's despair as almost cataclysmic and suggest Lee had to take extraordinary measures to protect her. She hardly went out at all during that period of time, drinking and remaining mostly housebound. 
Sources allege Lee raced to Jackie many times, flushing pills down the toilet to prevent her sister from overdosing on a toxic combination. As she learned to adjust to the loss, the young widow returned to her roots, purchasing an apartment on New York's Fifth Avenue. Still looking out for her, Robert Kennedy persuaded Radziwill to buy his wife a duplex nearby so she could be close and allow the kids to spend more time with their cousins. In the process of splitting anyway, Radziwill didn't take much convincing. While the proximity was a comfort to Jackie, Lee thrived, finally having the freedom to be herself like never before. Determined to distinguish herself from her role as the first sister, Lee fell back on her talents. She courted a circle of famous friends and experimented with different careers in an attempt to find her own identity. Among her friends were film director Sofia Coppola, artist Andy Warhol, ballet star Rudolf Nureyev, conductor Leonard Bernstein, and famed designer Yves Saint Laurent. Author Truman Capote called her one of his swans and interviewed her extensively in hopes of writing a book about her and other acclaimed women of society's elite. Capote also urged her to become a stage actress, and she embraced this new direction in her life with fervor. Lee started writing articles on fashion and culture for Ladies Home Journal, inspired designers like Marc Jacobs, and even inspired a Tory Burch purse. She also appeared on some TV shows and in an off-Broadway production, but the reviews weren't that impressive. According to Lee, many of the reviews had been written before the critics had a chance to see the performance. Not that it mattered. Her mere mention guaranteed great publicity, so there was that. But negative reviews aside, critics categorized her endeavors as crazy stunts designed to make her more popular and notorious than her sister. If that were true, it failed. As the grieving widow, Jackie continued to garner public adoration as the bearer of the Kennedy legacy. On Lee's big opening night of the Philadelphia story, Jackie didn't even show up. When asked for comment, Lee said nothing. How do you criticize the country's favorite? And to be fair, Jackie had more things on her mind than her sister's little theater thing. She was urging Robert to run for president. He had a strong campaign, but we'll never know. He was assassinated in June 1968 after celebrating his victory in the California Democratic primary, and Jackie fell into depression once more. Overwhelmed by tragedy and so many things she couldn't control, Jackie began to fear for her own life and her children's. Without any better reason to justify the horror she had gone through, she became convinced that there were people who hated the Kennedys and wanted to exterminate all of them. Maybe she was afraid it was the mob. Angry, disgruntled citizens. It wouldn't be a stretch. Growing up in high society, she might have had a difficult time relating to normal people. Her trauma and personal exposure to violence wouldn't have made this any easier. She felt like she had to protect her children. She had to leave the United States. It was a sensitive issue. She couldn't just approach anyone. Besides the matter of personal security and the presumed Kennedy resistance, there was a risk to her image. How would it look if the public learned she was afraid? So Jackie turned to the one person she trusted who had the means to make it happen. Onassis. He had previously offered a standing invitation to his island. It was private and discreet. And they were friends. Neither of them were in a place to begin a relationship. So why not? 
perhaps because of Lee? Lee had strong feelings for Onassis. At one time, she considered leaving Red's a will for him. But she stayed with the Polish almost duke because she feared tarnishing the reputation of her sister and her in-laws. Lee had made a sacrifice for them. For her. Plus, everyone knows the girl code is very specific in its bans against dating the ex-lovers of friends. And sisters even more. But if those thoughts went through Jackie's mind, they were considered and summarily dismissed. In October of that year, Jackie called and announced that she and Onassis had decided to marry. The news hit Lee like a stack of bricks. After everything she did, everything she gave up for them, the love and support she'd shown them, how could she do that to her? Clueless and probably suffering from PTSD, Jackie hardly noticed. She reportedly just told her sister, I need this. Lee must have been devastated. She lost out by not calling dibs. It was her childhood all over again. Naturally, she was invited to the wedding, and Jackie asked her to be her matron of honor. Of course, she complied and afterwards assured reporters that everything was okay. I'm very happy to have been at the origin of this marriage, she told them. But in private, she wept. As if it couldn't get any better, afterwards, the press and pop culture gave Jack the popular moniker, Jackie O. So now, Lee had a catchphrase haunting her, too. And so they kept up the charade. Lee would do her thing jet-setting and attending parties and galas, and Jackie did, too. She remained active in charity circles and worked as an editor at Viking Press before accepting a job at Doubleday as a senior editor. Remember Janet's feelings about publishing? <laughs> well, you'd be the only one. Janet admired her daughter's independence. She was, after all, an icon still in the spotlight. Lee continued to smile for the camera and play up to the press, once telling People magazine, It's just the most ludicrous thing in the world. We're exceptionally close and always have been. We're together very often. In fact, endlessly. But even in their exclusive circles, they didn't cross paths very often. I imagine playing the role of the happy sister-in-law for your former lover would have been a bit much for anybody. When Onassis died in 1975, he left Jackie $25 million on top of her inheritance from the Kennedy estate. And, of course, this put Jackie back in the spotlight, much to Lee's chagrin. In the 1980s, Janet was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and Jackie took on the burden of her care. In her moments of lucidity, Janet assigned the favored daughter title accordingly. The proximity gave Jackie access to her mother's attention like she hadn't had in quite a while. She reconnected with her, enjoying long talks and reminiscing. She also had access to her mother's financial records, where she learned at one point Janet paid Lee $750,000, a gift, to make up for favoring Jackie all those years ago. That pissed Jackie off. How dare she accept that? Considering the three-ring circus Lee constantly put her and her mother through, Jackie saw the payment as exploitative. Lee was well aware of their mother's mental condition. Their mom was certainly in no position to make such a decision on her own. 
That it had come to light so long after the fact made Jackie suspect even more it had been concealed from her deliberately. Let's face it, that's not a stretch. And why would Lee even need it? Didn't she have enough? The discovery did nothing to bring the sisters together. When Janet passed away in 1989, they'd grown even further apart. Now no longer competitors for their parents or lovers, the sisters operated as strangers. They had nothing to do with each other. They just smiled and denied the rift for years. In early 1994, Jackie was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Like all good crises, the news crumbled away any walls between the sisters. As always, Lee returned to her side to comfort her. It was too late to work out everything. There wasn't time to hash out nearly 60 years of slights, disagreements, and hurt feelings. Still, as Jackie succumbed to the illness on May 19th and fell into a coma, Lee held her hand and made her peace. She told Jackie, I love you so much. I always have Jax. I hope you know it. With so few opportunities to do so before, it must have felt nice to have the last word. In her will, Jackie was generous, leaving a substantial amount of cash and valuables to family, friends, and employees. She also bequeathed $500,000 trust funds to Lee's children. Lee didn't get a dime, not even a family memento. Of the omission, Jackie reportedly wrote, I have made no provision in this my will for my sister, Lee B. Radzawill, for whom I have great affection, because I've already done so during my lifetime. Perhaps Jackie felt she didn't need to leave Lee anything because she was already set up so well. Perhaps the consolation cash Janet had given her was still fresh on her mind. Maybe she figured while she was alive, she helped her enough. Although the same could have probably been said for Lee as well. Or maybe Jackie had heard the rumor Gore Vidal repeated that Lee's first husband had circulated. You know, the one about Lee banging JFK while on tour and bragging about it? Maybe she believed it. When Lee died in 2019, her funeral was attended by an impressive representation of the who's who from fashion, entertainment, and society. Reflecting upon her passing, friends said she struggled to go on after living in Jackie's shadow for so many years. Writers, including Capote, noted they understood each other in a way no one else could. Understood each other, yes. But bonded with each other? Not really. This has been Frenemies. Thanks for listening. an original production of Toil and Trouble Media. Executive produced by Jennifer Beck. This episode was also written and performed by Jennifer Beck. I'm kind of a big deal. Additional production assistance was provided by Aaron Iris and David Beck. And our music was performed by Snowflake and Admiral Bob. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen and tell your friends. It helps us rise above the crap. And check out our website at toilandtroublemedia.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and threads. 
We're also on Patreon, and we have a YouTube channel if you want even more Toil and Trouble media in your life. I lost control of those outlets a long time ago, so you never know what you're going to find. They're kind of like herding cats. And as always, thanks for listening.